welcome to the Social World Podcast. I'm Dave Niven, and uh, a very warm welcome to you all. Now, today, I want to kind of uh, let you hear a couple of interviews that I did uh, again back up at the Bascan Conference in Edinburgh a couple of weeks ago. But I thought, interestingly, um, following the general election in the UK, um, we ought to listen to what uh, some of the social work thoughts are from a couple of the other home nations. So I'm going to let you hear an interview I did with Alan Baird, who's the chief social work advisor to the Scottish government, and then an interview I did with Sean Holland, who's the chief social services officer uh, of social services for Northern Ireland. And so between them, you can get a good flavour of what's going on in these two countries these two constituent countries of the United Kingdom. Just before that, though, um, I do want to remind you of the facility we have here called SpeakPipe, when you can leave a message um, on the podcast, about the podcast, for me, and uh, talk about anything you want, really, and mention anything you want that you'd either like to hear or you've heard already, or just a comment. And in this case, um, there's a speak-pipe message from Anna Shelmerdine. So uh, let's have a listen to that first. I'd love to hear more about signs of safety um, and some of the new models taking place in child protection, like Social Work Matters um, in Southwark and the innovative work in Hackney and generally across the country, how that's going and how social workers are finding it working in those settings. Thank you. So thanks, Anna, for that. I've actually been in touch by email. I hope you got it, Anna, um, just to say that I will look into that and uh, we'll see what we can do. I'll do a bit of research on that and see if it's possible to do a, a segment on that in the not-too-distant future. But for now, Alan Baird, Chief Social Work Advisor to the Scottish Government. Now, my next guest is Alan Baird, who's the Chief Social Work Advisor to the Scottish Government. Now, Alan's been on this programme before. He's a welcome return guest. And since he's been on this programme, uh, he's now been asked to stay on in this present uh, role for another couple of years. And that means good things for continuity. And um, I know that he's quite excited about the programme ahead and the initiatives that are being done in Scotland as far as social work is concerned, and I think that's a good place to start, Alan. So welcome. Yeah, thanks, David, and, and good to meet up with you uh, again this time in Scotland. Yes, indeed. It's nice to be on home soil. Tell us a little bit about how you see the, the kind of the, the immediate and the middle-term future panning out for the initiatives that, that you're putting forward in Scotland, because I know you're quite excited about it. Yeah, and... In Scotland, over the last uh, 18 months, uh, we've been working uh, uh, on a vision, new vision and strategy for social services in Scotland. And we began that through the work of a strategic forum in November 2013 and chaired by uh, the Minister for Children and Families, who has responsibility for the, the workforce. And the idea behind that was really one that set the question is the social services profession as strong as it might be in Scotland? What are the challenges? What can we do about it? And in considering that, the forum was established 
as I say, chaired by one of the ministers. But the beauty of this work that we've been doing is that the sector itself is taking ownership of the direction of travel. Now, I think that's an important uh, milestone. The other important part of it, David, is that it's not born out of a crisis. Often we've responded with a knee-jerk reaction to, we've got to do something different, we've got to do it better. This time it's considered. It's a time when social services are under the same pressures in Scotland as they are in other parts of the UK and, and beyond, but an opportunity to reflect properly on, on the future of the profession. And it's not just about qualified social workers. As we know, David, it makes up it makes up quite a small part of, of what is 190,000 strong uh, workforce in Scotland. So it's important that we get things right for social care staff, as we do for qualified social workers, as we do for the statutory function of the chief social work officer, which uh, exists in in Scotland. So. In moving forward, we launched the strategy in March of this year, uh, very well received. It's a nice, relatively short uh, document that is very readable and puts in social services in the, the current context of political and demographic change, as well as the, the current austerity, austerity challenges that we have in Scotland. There was a smile on your face when you said short document there. <laughs> well, of course, uh, you want people to make use of it, you want people to read it, and uh, I think you and I both know over the years there have been many documents that have been written with good purpose and good intention that sit on shelves and gather dust. The intention is not to do that no, in no, this no. case. I know from my memory anyway that you certainly had five key points uh, of kind of um, uh, outcomes that you were hoping for, five key points of areas. I mean, would you like to talk just a little bit about that? Yeah, first first of all, uh, we've reduced it to four. Oh, um, so And uh, the fifth one, you know, you're quite right, referred to collaboration and partnership, but we see that as actually an integral part okay. of what we do. Uh, and therefore, we, we, we took that out and and it's built in uh, in a much more meaningful way. Um, we've got four different areas that, that stakeholders across the sectors, statutory, third sector and independent sector, were telling us that we should be concentrating on. One is the workforce. Second one is on the performance, uh, understanding performance of social services in Scotland. The third one is on research and uh, informed based practice and the third one is promoting uh, more positive public understanding. Right. These are the four that we're, okay. we're currently working on. What, we're, what we don't want to do is to duplicate work that already exists. For instance, the Social Services Council in Scotland regulates the workforce, has a responsibility for the development of the workforce. So what, we, what we're trying to do is add value to work that's already going on in these key areas. If you had to sort of um, encapsulate a little bit about kind of um, the, the morale in Scotland, as far as you've been able to gauge it as you go around, mm. you know, the, the various kind of parts of the country, 
Would you say that you're optimistic at the moment? Um, because there are parts of the UK where the morale in social services is, is quite low. Um, a lot of that's to do with vacancies, a lot of that's to do with whatever, but I mean, how, how would you match your Scottish experience at the moment against that kind of, these kind of guidelines, these kind of points? Yeah, I think, I think first of all, uh, Scotland has been well supported by uh, ministers in Scottish government, and that's, that's important, that, that they're valued, uh, they are doing uh, a complex uh, and challenging job in Scotland. Beyond that, the visits that I do, and I do spend a lot of time uh, listening to and talking with, with frontline staff at different levels of organisation, and also ministers committed themselves to six frontline engagement events with staff across Scotland last year. So ministers sitting down with frontline staff and asking them directly what the challenges, what the problem, that's important. Okay. Uh, staff really value that. And that's going to be followed up by another uh, six during the course of, of, of this year. It's tough out there. There's no point in pretending otherwise. Um, but I think uh, morale is still reasonably good. And that will vary from place to place. Um, we don't tend to have the level of vacancies in Scotland that, that, that perhaps yeah. Uh, yeah. exists um, uh, in England. Uh, and therefore less dependency on, on agency staff and so on and so forth. So good continuity, I think, is really important. People working together uh, and supporting one another through really difficult mm. times. The challenges are getting greater out there. Would you say, it's, it's been my experience in England, in some parts of England, let's say the, the, the outside the metropolitan areas, mm. that... Um, there's less of a turnover of staff there because people choose to go to some places because of a lifestyle choice as much as as, as well as the actual job itself and therefore there's a much slower turnover of staff. I'm thinking of places like Cornwall or places like you know the, the more kind of, in, in Wales and Pembrokeshire or wherever where it's you know considered the quality of life is, is good as well you know and there's lots of parts of Scotland in my view like that. Would that be the same do you think? I think it. I mean, I think it depends on 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 what role you have. I mean, for instance, uh, if you take social care in Edinburgh, Aberdeen, Murray, uh, Shetland, they struggle to get social care staff because of standards of living uh, in in these places. The other part of of it is that you will have a settled staff group often in more remote places, as you describe Cornwall, but mm. the same would apply in some of our remote com communities in Scotland. But when people leave, it can be difficult, difficult to, to, to replace, and that's when the problem is. So we, we know that often people don't <laughs> leave in more than ones and twos um, when they move on, so that can be uh, quite challenging. You've been in a very senior position for a while now, whether it's director of social yeah. work or whether it's now in your current position advising the government, but I mean, do you miss practice? Do I miss practice? Sometimes I do. Um, I was reflecting that in my presentation at the Bathcan uh, conference this morning about how you learn from and how you use that learning from situations that have occurred in your professional life 
to strengthen services. So I try to make use of my experiences in, in, in different ways. What I still remain passionate about is the opportunities that social services provide to uh, individuals across the country in many different situations, whether it's in children or, or older people or working with offenders. Uh, that passion's there and that belief about changing the lives of individuals and families is as strong now, David, as it was 35 years ago when I qualified. Good to hear. If you, um, let's put it this way, I, I know that one of the things, and I'm, I'm glad to be coming up to your, your conference in Creef to, to, to talk and maybe do a workshop, or we're not quite sure yet, but I mean, on uh, essentially the image of social work in the community and obviously all of us have got a particular target that we want to improve the image of social workers and allow people to hear more about good news, hear more about positive stories, because all they ever seem to do in the general media is hear sometimes about the difficulties. And I know that's one of your criteria, if you like, you want to, you want to make that better. Do you see it happening at all at the moment, or is it still a bit of an aspiration? I believe there's good examples of where we're able to use the, the media positively. What I think we need to do is have a national strategy, but one that's delivered locally. And it is hard work, and there are some parts of the media that will be very difficult to turn around. Um, but actually, I'm more concerned about the public understanding better what we do directly and not through the through the eyes and ears of the media. Yeah, I mean, I yes, I was because I was sorry. What I was going to do, ask you a bit about as well because it's say the media is though the window in the world for the majority of the population, and they tend to get their opinions, their ideas, and their knowledge, and, and they make their minds up on what they see and hear. Sometimes that what they see and hear, of course, is totally wrong, but that's how that's how it, it works. But if there was this more balanced view, if either through direct contact as you were just advocating or through the media itself, then when a crisis occurred or when a difficulty occurred or somebody's challenged or something like that, there would be more of a balanced knowledge in the community of what a social worker does or doesn't do, perhaps more to the point, so that tomorrow morning with a new case on the doorstep, the social worker had just that little bit more trust from the person in the house to actually engage and do their job. Would you say that's a fair representation? Absolutely, but it, but you have to work hard at that. We have to work hard and it needs to be constant. I also, I also believe that we don't make it easy for the public sometimes. I don't think we are often able enough to articulate ourselves in terms of what we do and do well. And in failing to do that does mean that we're even more on the back foot. Yes. Because problems do occur. You can't get away from the fact that, that things happen, mistakes get made, etc., etc. But um, we do, in my view, need to focus much more. And in doing so, we need to engage those that have been uh, beneficiaries of service. In Scotland, David, we have Who Cares Scotland, a very vibrant, uh, progressive group of young 
men and women who have left care and they articulate better than anyone else about their experience, what the strengths were, what the problems were and how that can be changed. Now some of them talk very positively at times about the role of, of social work but other times they have had an experience that hasn't frankly been mm. been good enough. They're people that we can learn from, they're people that can sure. help put uh, a message out and uh, those, as I say, who have um, worked with social work successfully, I think, have an important role to play. And would uh, I take your point very strongly because these are the best advocates for change and the best advocates for actually um, people believing what goes on, or the actual people who have actually been consumers. <laughs> would you also say, now I, I know it's the case elsewhere and I think it must be the case in Scotland too, but there's often been a case in employers' eyes uh, in terms of allowing social workers or social work activity to be discussed in, in the media or wherever, that there's often a confusion between confidentiality and secrecy. Yeah. And, and you know, some people just won't allow anything to happen, whereas there's plenty that could be talked about that wouldn't breach any confidence at all. Is, is that a fair point? I, I, I agree with with that point, uh, I think we at times hide behind the data protection wording, um, other times it's perfectly appropriate. But that's why I go back to saying if individuals, families themselves are prepared to talk about social work alongside the profession itself, bringing greater clarity about its role, then I think the two things coming together could be quite a, p a powerful advocate for change. A final point, um, a message, if you like, from you to social workers in Scotland, of course, but I think you know, you, you'll appreciate this, the, the programme goes sort of quite beyond the borders of the UK and far and wide, but to the social work profession in general and also um, to those thinking of becoming social workers, what, what would your message be in, at this time? I would look at my own career and the, the opportunities and some of the challenges and I've loved most of it, it would be wrong to say I've loved all of it. If you're thinking about a career in social work then you should do it. Scotland needs a good range of qualified, competent passionate, caring people uh, who can and want to change the, the lives of others. That's possible in this role. I've seen it, I've done it and in Scotland you work with uh, in an environment of support uh, and progressive changes that we're trying to make in Scotland to make it a career. Uh, worth considering. So you obviously consider it still very worthwhile. Absolutely. As I say, that, that hasn't changed for, for me over my career. Scotland needs a strong, robust and competent workforce. Alan Beard, thanks very much indeed. Well, there we are. That was Alan. That was Alan Beard's thoughts on social work in Scotland. Now, Sean Holland. Chief Social Services Officer at the Social Services for Northern Ireland. So let's have a listen to the interview at, uh, that I did with Sean. 
Okay, well, I'm really pleased to have Sean Holland with me, who's the Chief Social Worker for Northern Ireland, but also rejoices in the title of the Dep Deputy Secretary for Social Policy in the Department of Health. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you for asking me, David. So, um, you've been at the Bascan Congress for a bit now, and you've got round as much as you're able, because I know there's so much to choose from. What's, what's been your impression so far? Well, um, certainly it's great to see so many people freeing up the time to get here. That shows a commitment to uh, learning and sharing experiences at a time when it's difficult to make the time and have the resources to go to a conference. So I think that's great. Um, the other big impression I have, I suppose, has been the, um, the balance between a lot of uh, very interesting qualitative pieces of work um, which are always helpful in giving insights into the lived experience of people in certain situations, but those sitting alongside some big data pieces and what they're telling us about uh, the size, nature, scope, depth, breadth of what we're talking about. Huge amount to take in sometimes, yep. isn't it? And, and the, the multiple choices are sometimes baffling in terms of, you know, is, 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 is oranges are better than apples in terms of going to something. Uh, sometimes there's a bit of serendipity as well, and you, <laughs> you, you can find something that you weren't expecting to be great, and it knocks you socks off. Okay. So um, what, what have been some of the things you've, you've gone to see, or, and what's, what's, what are you going to be taking back to Northern Ireland with you in terms of... Um, not just impressions, but also possibilities for you to sort of think about more in the future. Okay, um, I mean, a few things. On the big data stuff, uh, James Mercy from uh, CDC in Atlanta, um, a very information-loaded presentation, but what I really took away from it was that when you actually do collect some hard data, sometimes some very solidly held preconceptions about the nature of the problem turn out to be unfounded. Um, uh, this is particularly around the profile of uh, who were the primary risks in terms of sexual abuse in certain societies. Um, uh, and uh, sometimes the data doesn't match up what uh, people's experience and folk knowledge tells them. Okay. I, and I know too that, um, like most people here, but you've got a particularly senior position. You have a view in terms of mandatory reporting debate that's been going on, uh, which you know we've heard quite a bit about, both sides of it. And it seems to be consuming people's debate at the moment and discussion. What, what sort of thoughts have you got from that? Well, certainly the most passionate response I saw from an audience at Congress was um, when uh, Sue Bellowitz was talking about mandatory reporting. She nailed her colours to the mast um, uh, and said that, well, that that's what people should do and she was for it. Um, and there was a passionate response to that. Um, but for me, I suppose the other one of the other most impressive uh, uh, presentations I had was from Catherine McKay uh, here in Scotland, and she was talking about the stuff that we're developing our knowledge and have been for a few years around neuroscience, early years development, um, uh, and how that should shape our approach to this uh, broad piece of work in terms of family support and early intervention. And I came away from that thinking, Mandatory reporting isn't an early intervention approach to the problem of you know, people not dealing with cases. Uh, it, it is a very reactionary uh, response. Something has gone wrong, we will punish you in the hope that you and others won't let that wrong thing happen again. Uh, it's an emotionally satisfying way of dealing with things, but um, if we apply what we're increasingly coming to believe and know about how to improve outcomes for children as a whole, 
it strikes me that's not the way you go about it. You would have a preventative approach. It's about making sure that people understand their responsibilities. They're trained to, to deal with them. I, I, I get it. I take it. I appreciate what you're saying, and I kind of tend towards that myself. But I'm wondering what you think. Of, I mean, there's one kind of caveat that I have with that, and I don't mm -hmm. know how you feel about it, is that if we're talking about child sexual abuse specifically, um, I mean, we've never really been able to pin down exactly and scientifically um, what it is that, 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 that makes the paedophile interested in young children. And, and the nearest we can always get to it is calling it an addiction, if you like. And like with most, but, but unlike most other addictions where the victim is yourself, essentially here the victim is somebody else, i.e. a child. And so there's never, like any addiction, there's never going to be a cure. There's only control. And therefore, you can obviously promote self-control, and that can be done through therapeutic intervention, support, group work, whatever it is. But because there's such a risk to another victim that's not yourself, you have to surely have societal control as well. And I'm just wondering if how you how you might think about that in terms of actually how we therefore respond to people who are sexually attracted to children. Okay. I mean, I think you've actually hit on something that's concerned me a bit throughout some of the presentations I've heard, and that is, um, I suppose, a looseness of language when talking about sexual abuse. Um, uh, paedophiles perpetrate a particular kind of sexual abuse. Unfortunately, increasingly, I hear that term used interchangeably with other kinds of sexual abuse. And it's not being pedantic. I think it is important because we know things about the behaviour uh, of paedophiles. We know things about violent sexual assault and if we start to become sloppy about how, how we talk about them I think we can lose our knowledge. Um, I think that broadly speaking in terms of sexual abuse and the challenge that's happening at the moment uh, we are starting to get an appreciation of the extent to which uh, young people, and it tends to be actually post-pubescent young people, so young people, 13 to 17, uh, and how um, they're exposed to sexual violence, sexual coercion, sexual exploitation. Uh, and we're shifting our attention to that, and that's quite right that we should do so. But I think in, we should maybe look back a little, because what worked for us over the past 30 years in relation to familial sexual abuse. It's not a problem we've cured by any means, but I would argue that um, child protection systems in the UK made great progress over the past 30 years. And 30, 40 years ago, uh, even to acknowledge that such abuse existed was a challenge. We now have a situation where every school teacher in the country understands the potential for a child in front of them uh, to be the victim of familial sexual abuse. We have police officers and social workers who are trained to jointly investigate uh, and interview in relation to that kind of abuse. We have seen um, sentencing start to take that situation really seriously. We've made a lot of progress. We've developed therapeutic services. Now, can do better on all of those fronts but we have had success. I think maybe we should take a moment, pause, and say, well, what worked for us? Um, because there were missteps along the way. I'm old enough to remember um, reflex anal dilation as a diagnostic technique. Um, uh, uh, Cleveland. And, yeah, Cleveland. Uh, uh, and uh, how not being rigorous about the science, about knowledge, about study, can take you to bad places. Um, uh, this is a very emotional time. Um, a lot of young people have been 
catastrophically damaged uh, and it's been on people's watch. So emotions are running high, but I think we need to, to get a grip uh, and have a cool look at what works. So possibly to, to also sort of paraphrase what you're saying, and I think I'd agree with you, that, that, that we've gone away and the media has possibly been one of the guilty parties in actually calling paedophilia everything that's, you know, anything to do with underage sex. Whereas, in effect, paedophilia is probably to really we should be talking about prepubescent sexual activity and in general men, although not entirely, but in general men who are attracted to children. And that, and that should be separated when we're looking at mandatory reporting, possibly, is what you're saying. Is that fair? Well, I think what I'm saying is that there are um, boys and young men who are moving into situations where they have violent destructive negative relationships with girls and they're, they're, they're not on the road to, 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 to becoming uh, paedophiles I think there is a gender issue um, and I think it's a different response I think that uh, um, uh, paedophilia is a, a very complex but narrow um, uh, part of child sexual abuse I think that there is a gender issue about young people and their relationships uh, and I'm much more comfortable with the idea that we should be looking at how do we stop young men becoming people who are not good people to have relationships with the recent um, publicly aware scandals and concerning teenagers you know the grooming of teenagers and the, I'm sure it's not stopped yet you know the, the vast numbers coming out of the woodwork if you like in terms of our awareness of the, the scale of the problem um, I mean, I know for a fact, I mean, I chair a safeguarding children board myself and effectively I know the frenetic activity that is now going on to try and re-examine responses and preparation and investigation towards that. How is Northern Ireland responding to what essentially at the moment, I know there's been scandals in Northern Ireland, but you know, there's been quite a collection in England. And uh, how is, what's the response in Northern Ireland at the moment? Well, we've had um, a former Children's Commissioner from Scotland, uh, uh, Kathleen Marshall, um, do some work for us on uh, child sexual exploitation. We're going to have another report coming out in June, which is a thematic review of uh, a, a particular set of cases that were part of the police investigation and we'll look at what we need to do in response to that and I mean I suspect that uh, the sorts of things that we'll do are a continuation of what we are doing. It's better training, better awareness but I think the real challenge is why have these cases not been handled well in the first place? Now occasionally it's malevolence, you know, so there are some people who should not be in this area of work but I think most people get into child protection for good intentions and they want to do good so if they haven't done good I think we should ask ourselves why and it's because this can be a very challenging and complex area to work with. Some of the young people who have um, uh, experienced the most awful crimes um, it's hard to get services that meet their needs. It's hard to get services that they're comfortable with engaging in. And I think that we need to recognise it's difficult. And that's why we haven't done well. We simply said blame people um, without thinking, well, why did they not handle this well? We're not going anywhere. I know you've also got a lead in various other disciplines within social work as well in Northern Ireland. I mean, you were telling me some. I mean, what are some of the challenges that you're finding? I mean, maybe you'd just like to outline one or two of the areas that you have got particular responsibility for as well. Well, um, I, my area covers, uh, I suppose, older people, mental health services, learning and physical disability, and children's services. Um, I think probably the biggest challenge that uh, I think we're going to have to have is an honest discussion about how we cope with an ageing population. 
politically at the moment, I get the sense that people are still in the, the, the space of saying we need more service or we need, need it to be a higher quality service. The numbers that we see in terms of demographics mean that we're actually going to have to have a different paradigm. Um, and that's going to be challenging. I think we're going to have to have a very honest discussion as a society as to what responsibility one member of a family has to another family member when they uh, become old um, uh, and when they become more dependent. And what the state can do, what will the state's offer be to support and help families cope um, as opposed to uh, the model that I think people had uh, got used to, which is that a state can intervene and take this responsibility away from citizens. Um, I don't think that that's practical or even necessarily desirable. Um, I, I quite like the idea of families with three and even four generations living under the mm -hmm. one roof. Um, I see a lot of benefits um, for all of those generations. Social work is obviously all about care and all about the practice of care in the most modern and efficient way that we can we can practice it. Uh, but at the same time, obviously, there is a darker side, just like we're talking about in children and child protection and so forth. And uh, there's been a greater awareness in recent years, I'm sure you would agree, in terms of adult safeguarding. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of adult safeguarding essentially comes under the same headings as child safeguarding. I do appreciate that. But there are some particular areas that, I, that seem to me, who's not, who's not a specialist in this, uh, tangled and, and very difficult. And I'm thinking more of things like financial abuse and so forth. I, I mean, and I'm, I'm kind of a little bit in the dark, but I, un I think I understand the problems. But it's such a complicated matter. I wondered if you had come across many initiatives or thoughts on that. No, you actually hit uh, something uh, on the head there in that uh, I think there are some different skill sets needed in relation to some of the investigation and assessments. I mean, financial abuse requires you to have different assessment skills to be able to identify uh, whether or not um, something's happening which constitutes financial abuse. I think there is a risk in approaching adult safeguarding as if it is some kind of mirror image of children's safeguarding because it's not. Um, and in particular, we have to be very careful uh, that we don't lose the long-held principle that adults have the right to make choices that aren't necessarily in their best interests. And um, uh, when children do that, we have an obligation to protect them from the consequences. Um, with adults, I think that while I, I, I don't want people to make bad choices, I think we have to recognise that it is the right of adults to make bad choices. Now, as you become vulnerable, you need to have some extra checks and balances, mm -hmm. but I don't want to get to the situation where just because someone is 85, they can't plough their own furrow, even if it might be in a way that uh, a, a, a young social worker on, a child, on an adult protection team might necessarily agree with. I think it's a careful thing that we've got to do. Yeah. Um, and I also think there's a risk that a lot of other things can inappropriately be classified as safeguarding issues when they're not. Um, recently I heard of an example where uh, uh, there was uh, an altercation between two uh, uh, gentlemen in a residential facility that involved one elderly gentleman with, with dementia throwing a piece of toast at another and it hit that gentleman and someone said, well, this is a, we need to, to, to record this as an adult safeguarding incident. No, you don't. You know, um, there, there's good practice, there's day-to-day -day management, um, and not everything is safeguarding. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we'll find our way. There always will be peripheral debate, won't there, about that? But I mean, 
What about the, the thing that seems to be consuming an awful lot of English authorities, and that is domiciliary care and the, the, the time of visits, you know, the 15-minute rule and so forth. Is that a problem that you've come across much in Northern Ireland? Is that, is that something too in terms of... There seems to be a lot of people saying that people are missing out because of bureaucracy, low pay, the way that domiciliary care is organised in terms of the quality of, of, of actually the delivery because there's either there's not enough time or there's, there's really just not enough proper kind of um, thought put into it sometimes by agencies. I, I don't know, that's just my impression. Is that a, a problem within Northern Ireland? We have our challenges with domiciliary care, certainly. I'm nervous about the idea of uh, specifying anything below 15 minutes is bad practice. I think those kind of lines in the sand don't reflect the complexity of the nature of the business we're in. And there may well be times when a short visit will accomplish its objective, that's, that's fine. But there is an issue. This is a workforce who we are increasingly going to depend upon. Uh, they're a minimum wage workforce. Uh, the turnover in that workforce is really high. Um, I think there are things we can do. Certainly, uh, we need to value and recognise the quality of the work and support it with good training. I think one of the key things is putting more effort into our recruitment um, because there is huge variance between different providers paying the same level of pay uh, in terms of retention. Some employers are retaining people at a far better rate than others. And if you talk to families and older people who are in receipt of these services, consistency of care is one of the things they really value. They don't like three different people people coming in in one different day and that being multiplied seven days a week um, where there is no intimacy, no privacy and most importantly no ability to build a relationship. What they value is consistency of care. So if we can look and learn from those employers who do seem to be able to recruit the right people in the first place and then retain them, I think that's got potential for a big win in domiciliary care. I know I'm kind of hedge hopping but that's... mental health was something you mentioned too. Um, I'm, I'm interested in, 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 in England, the, the CAMS system, you know, the, the Children and Adolescent Mental Health Services. Um, is that as, is there as much delay in getting a service in Northern Ireland, in your opinion, as there seems to be in many parts of uh, the rest of the UK? It's one of the areas where we're consistently missing our targets uh, in terms of uh, um, time from referral to assessment to follow up to review, um, uh, and we're not doing well enough. I think that we maybe need to take a step back. I mean, there are clearly supply problems in terms of some of the key posts, um, but maybe we start to need to start having a more open mind as to how we can support young people. Um, there are some very specialist uh, uh, requirements in terms of some of the psychiatrists practicing in this space. and. For as long as I've been involved in this area of work, there have been posts that you cannot fill, not because you don't have the money, but because the body isn't available. Now, that hasn't been fixable in, in 20 years. Uh, so I, I, I'm inclined to think that maybe we need to rebalance what the profile looks like in terms of service delivery. One of, uh, perhaps a penultimate question, but I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of things like we're looking at adoption services here. Now, well, Justice Mumby, the kind of head of the family division over here, has, has effectively made a bit of a crusade about getting time spent in adoption practice through the courts down to about 26 weeks. Um, there was a perception that an awful lot of the, I use the word blame 
you know, in inverted commas, but I mean, it fell on social workers. And an awful lot of social workers I know in that particular discipline disagreed, thinking that the courts were actually part of the major delay problem. What was what, what's the landscape of that like in Northern Ireland, would you say? Well, um, we have our difficulties with delay still, and we're still operating under old adoption legislation. Um, you're operating under much newer legislation uh, in, in England and Wales. Um, uh, and we've been trying to bring forward a new adoption and children bill, and it has so far uh, not been able to make it uh, into the timetabling for this legislative mandate. So I feel we're, we're, we're fighting with one hand tied behind our back in the first instance. We're working with very, very outdated legislation. I think the perception that some of the problem uh, relates to social workers is widely held amongst members of the judiciary. Um, uh, uh, when you get the chance to actually sit down with uh, judges uh, and analyse the anatomy of delay, I think that they do come round to realising that possibly some of their behaviours have had a significant impact on delay. And of course, CAFCAS has no, no part to play in the blame. Well, I'm not going to comment on CAFCAS. We don't have CAFCAS in Northern Ireland. We've got our own excellent guardian ad litem service. Um, uh, 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 and uh, I, 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 uh, I, I uh, don't think, actually, genuinely actually, I mean in Northern Ireland, I don't think that that role has been a significant feature in delay. Um, I think that uh, the lack of understanding of some judges about what the assessments in front of them are telling them uh, has been a significant feature. I think that there has been a desire to repeatedly seek out expert corroboration of um, uh, social workers' assessment and testimony. Um, uh, and it's interesting, when you talk to a judge, they'll, they'll say, well, the social worker tells me this, but I want an expert. And uh, you know, the social worker may well have been working with his family for two years, three years, um, intensely really, really intensely. And the expert may re review documentation at a huge fee for an hour or so. Um, I, I think we need to, to, to help some judges understand. It's always been a bugbear. It has, and, and, and you can tell it still rankles oh, I know, with me. I know. Well, I mean, and because I mean, so many social workers themselves wouldn't call themselves expert witnesses, but they are experts in social work. That's Absolutely. What, that's exactly what it's all about. Not only are they experts in social work, but they are very much experts in the family before the court on the day. And I think there's this notion that um, somehow uh, social workers uh, are, are adversarially pitched against a family. They're not. They're there for a child. And I think that we've lost that somehow in the popular consciousness. Okay, Sean, final question. Um, People out there, uh, social workers who are actually in practice in Northern Ireland, and also people possibly at university or considering social work as a career, what would your message be to them? Don't touch it with a barge pole if you are not an optimist. Social workers have to believe things can change, they can change for the better, and they can be part of that change. And if you have that, we can deal with the rest of it. Um, but uh, if you haven't, there are other careers for you. Um, social work's a place for optimists. Um, uh, and if you come to social work with that personal quality, you will do great things. You will protect people, you will enhance the quality of their lives, you will do good work. Sean Holland, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, David. Well, there we are. That's this week's. But 
just to remind you a few little things. I mean, I really would love to hear your views. Use SpeakPipe or get messages to me somehow or other. Remember Twitter at Dave Niven. Um, we've also iTunes. You can download this podcast from iTunes as well as the website um, www.socialworldpodcast.com, Spreaker, Podfeed, all these other platforms you can get it from. And technical help, as always, Alba Digital Media have been fantastic in supporting this podcast and helping make it happen. So, for now, till the next one, many thanks for listening.